Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Good afternoon, everyone. I'm Daniel Paris, a host of the uh, New Books and Finance channel of the New Books Network. I'm delighted to have as my guest today uh, the author Kathleen Day. She uh, just came out with Broken Bargain, Bankers, Bailouts, and the Struggle to Tame Wall Street, just published by Yale University Press. Kathleen Day is a longtime journalist, financial journalist uh, associated with The Washington Post and other publications. Kathleen, thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me. Uh, I also happen to work uh, in the financial services sector. I also happen to be trained as a historian. Uh, And so I was particularly intrigued by your book, Taking the Long View and Casting the Issues that Are Relevant Today and Are Spoken About Today about banks, their activities, regulation, uh, the fact, the influence of individual actors, and so forth uh, in a historical light. And I think. What will come as a surprise, but revelatory for many, is that these issues that we are arguing on the front pages and the back pages of newspapers and on talk shows today about the financial services industry began with the founding of the republic and continued throughout the history of the United States. Uh, as a historian, I'm, I uh, feel that one can always benefit from understanding the history of a problem. And Broken Bargain does just an outstanding job of placing these current issues in, in the context of uh, two centuries of history. Let's, let's start at some of the beginning. Uh, at the very founding of the Republic, uh, there were debates that you could almost hear on CNN or Fox News in a different format about the financial services industry, specifically banks, who has the right to print money, and who should be regulating it, and who in charge of that. Can you kind of provide some of the, the highlights uh, of the, the debates that were swirling around the founders of this country? Yes, uh, th- thank you, because you, you give me hope that, that I've accomplished what I set out to do, which was number one, is to write a history as you describe, and two, to put it in plain English so that people can understand uh, current crises what I came to understand as a reporter is each one, each crisis is unique in a way, but it always stems from the one before and then before that and before that. And eventually you do end up back with the founding fathers. And one of the most interesting things that I learned in writing a book, as a book writer, I'm sure you appreciate you often learn more than than sometimes you can even include for readers, is that the history of corporations and the history of banking are intimately intertwined. They're inextricably linked. And the modern corporation, which America created and exported, really began in and was argued about by early Americans, even before we were a country. The Constitution of the United States does not include the word bank or corporation. If it had, it would, the founders on both sides, Hamilton and Jefferson, they thought it wouldn't have been ratified. Those concepts were enormously controversial. And people think of Hamilton and Jefferson's debate and controversy as one about banking. And they often cast Jefferson as someone who didn't understand banking or uh, and Hamilton is, is someone who didn't understand what Jefferson was afraid of. And in fact, n- neither of those things is true. Hamilton understood the dangers of banking and Jefferson understood the need for banks. The real question was corporations. Who should have what government authority, whether it should be state or federal, to grant an incorporation? And to make a long story short, what I really learned or came to appreciate is that I had taken the corporate form for granted and really had not thought of it properly. And that is as something that is bequeathed by the government and therefore something that the government has a, a right. They're, the government grants it on behalf of the citizens and therefore has an obligation, not just a right, but an obligation to police it. So in colonial times, there was great mistrust of, of the powers of people who owned banks or extended credit and who had incorporations. As a result, in that period of history, 
corporations were granted, incorporations were granted for limited purposes and for limited time periods. And that stems from this mistrust of giving too much power uh, from the government to a group of people. So they typically lasted for 20 years and for were for ex- specific things such as building a canal. And so Franklin, Benjamin Franklin, for example, suggested, well, let's allow incorporations in the Constitution for things like that. And some other people said, yes, maybe. But in the end, they said, no, we have to take it out because if you get into allowing the federal government uh, to allow incorporations, then that's going to mean that's going to make people think you're going to allow a federally chartered bank. And that's too controversial. Anyway, so this is an argument uh, that has been going on for a very long time. And it, it all has to do with credit and power. I think that one of I think many readers would be surprised to learn that the first and the second bank of the United States, which is kind of the precursors to the to the current Federal Reserve, had 20 year, uh, I believe, 20 year charters and they they lapsed, they they elapsed. And then those institutions went away and had to be created anew. And then they went away and uh, that that created enormous uh, there were political reasons for why people were opposed to the to the first bank of the United States and the second bank of the United States. But that uh, uh, in the absence of some sort of central structure, there were uh, you know real issues with the amount of money in circulation and credit available, uh, and that it was an economic uh, you know it was an, uh, a, an impediment to economic growth. Yes, it definitely was. And I mean, there were so many, there are so many interesting anecdotes. I love American history and there's so many colorful things and I had to not include everyone, but I did not know, now perhaps you did, before the Civil War and after the end of the Second Bank of the United States, which as you correctly say, was a precursor to our central bank, um, there were, we did not have a national currency in the United States. And so in the 20 year period before the civil war the nation had somewhere an estimated 7 to 9000 different denominations because every state chartered bank in every state issued currency so not only was there different currency from state to state but from bank to bank within a state and once you add up the different denominations like ones fives and tens there was something like 9000 different uh pieces of paper that people could have. And it was, you can imagine when you, when you traveled from one state to another, it was like traveling and it used to be before uh, the European Union, traveling through Europe where you had to convert your currency. And of course, in the days before uh, speedy communication, the further away from your bank that had issued the note you were carrying, the more mistrust was people had about it. And so it, it became devalued the further away it went. So there was this very, uh, de Tocqueville had this, has a wonderful passage um, in his, one of his books talking about, he just doesn't understand why Americans didn't love the first and second bank of the United States, because it's such a mobile young society. They could at least carry some paper in their pocket that would hold value out in, in, in the, you know, Ohio, they would it would hold value in the new frontier, but the mistrust of of really stemming from the revolution, this mistrust of incorporations and the Bank of England, which was incorporated by royalty, people would rather they thought have the inconvenience. Then came along the Civil War, and Lincoln, President Lincoln, and his Treasury Secretary Samuel Chase said, "Wow." We, we really are going to have trouble funding the war for a number of reasons, not the least of which is we don't have a currency, a national currency. So it's very hard to buy. We don't have a central bank. We don't have a central, we don't have a national currency. It's very hard to borrow and lend money, all those things, and to, and to tax and to finance a war. So they came up with a very ingenious uh, system, which I call, and I've not seen it called anywhere else. I've not seen it called this anywhere else, but the national banking system, I think, really was a stealth central bank. And I think Lincoln and Chase meant it to be that, but they couldn't call it that because the ghost of Samuel, of, of, of Jackson was there. Uh, this is President Andrew Jackson, Andrew Jackson who uh, not Samuel Jackson. really, yeah, really didn't like the, the uh, government bank and uh, as uh, president had an opportunity to, to manifest his dislike for it. He killed the second bank. Yes. Andrew Jackson. I'm sorry. Um, but it, so Andrew Jackson, the ghost of Andrew Jackson and this real hatred, this up uh, as a populist. I mean, there's a reason why Trump loves him. He was a kind of a dangerous guy and he had this outsized hatred of the idea of a uh, central bank and of 
he really mistrusted paper currency in a, I would like to to be charitable and unsophisticated fear of paper currency. He really didn't understand how it worked. Of course, if you print too much of it, it is a dangerous thing, but paper currency is also super convenient. So anyway, so they, we get to the civil war and so they created the national bank system, which uh, married two ideas that has become entrenched in our banking system. And that is this sort of dual banking, this idea of you have you can have lots of national banks, but they'll they'll there won't just be just one. So there'll be national banks all over. So they sort of have regional control. And they and it was much better than what had been, but it still wasn't a true central bank. But it was the only way that they could really um, tame this crazy currency system that had existed before the Civil War. So the the uh, the government kind of broaches uh, uh, unofficially um, the resumption of a centralized some sort of centralized finance during the Civil War. Uh, some modern readers, uh, reaching back to their their history, will recall that the period after the Civil War is a period of tremendous economic growth, also a period of great cyclicality. The first Great Depression was in the late 19th century. There was a period of sustained a lack of inflation or deflation in that period. Uh, economy was very, very cyclical. And so um, it begins to raise the issues of how do we get enough money in the hands of the right people so the economy can continue to grow, all at the same time dealing with scandal after scandal after scandal after scandal. And that seems to be a dynamic tension running throughout the entire book. You need money for complex economic activity, but everywhere you turn and every way you do it, there's someone trying to line their pockets. And you see a tremendous amount of that in the late 19th century uh, as the economy grows and it sets up, you know, kind of sets the stage for um, uh, the situation leading to the creating the Federal Reserve. Do you want to discuss kind of the banking in the late 19th century that accompanied uh, the industrialization of the country? Yeah, it was, it was, well, first of all, there's this parallel, as I alluded to earlier, as, as the country was going through, and you're quite right, all these bank, well, the bank failures were really bad before the Civil War, but they, 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 they were plentiful afterwards too, because there wasn't deposit insurance. So, um, and then you had, um, you had this continued mistrust, but you also had the rise of these industrialists and these great fortunes that were made in um, railroads and oil and and these industrialists and in beginning in finance. And you began to get the trusts and they really began to shape the corporate form because they would go to states and say, you know, it's really a pain to keep having to, well, first of all, there was the trust busting era too. So, and there were these trusts which were formed. I didn't really understand trusts. I'm not sure I really understand it now, but I understand it a lot more than I did where, where they would have interlocking. They'd have the same people on different boards and it really looks like a, very much like a holding company would today. And then there was the trust busting movement at the end of the 19. 19- of the 1800s. And so the men, the, the mostly men, I'm sorry, uh, but the, the people who had these gi- the ginormous uh, empires and were so wealthy began to lobby states to uh, let them incorporate uh, holding, basically what the modern day holding company to own corporations in instead of having to go through this complicated pretzel twisting uh, trust form. So they created and they began to lobby and say, you know, it's really a pain to have to come back and keep renewing every couple 20 years our our charter. So then you got this race of between the states, and I think New Jersey for a while was the worst, where they said, "Oh, you know, we'll let you do whatever you want if you incorporate here, because then we get the taxes from incorp- from your incorporation. So you don't you don't have to you can apply once and you can exist forever." Um, and so charters, this idea of limited charter uh, with um, con- you know periodic renewals to review their record went out the window, and this idea that they uh, had to get an incorporation for a specific product product went out the window. And so you had the rise in these big money trusts and big uh, through holding companies and, and changing the corporate form. And prior to World War I, there was a big banking scandal in the early 1900s that did finally make 
everyone in Congress say, look, enough already. We're a huge industrial country. We, we can't look to Wall Street to constantly be helping us fix these crises. This and is the run of 1907. This is it's where a, J.P. Morgan helps, helps personally solve it. And the Knickerbocker, there's a, a, a bank, trust, the Knickerbocker yeah. Trust fell and it caused the 1907 panic. And the government was, uh, had to go hat in hand, uh, yes, to J.P. Morgan and say, Can, please help us. And it gave him $25 million, which at the time obviously was a lot of money. It still is. Uh, but it, it, it made people mistrustful why he was going around deciding, picking who, and maybe the government would also do it in not a fair way, but having a private citizen do it really made people think, is he being fair? Is he doling out that money, deciding who lives and who dies on in, in, in financial America? Is it really without conflict of interest? So finally, we get the Federal Reserve in 1913, but then World War I breaks out. And and there had been an investigation in Congress of this idea that there had been a money trust, a, a group of men who really controlled credit in this country. And the findings are they found a lot of really eyebrow raising material and a lot of evidence that, in fact, there was uh, a very vibrant money trust among the most powerful financial financial institutions. But because of World, of World War One, the public's uh, attention didn't didn't really focus on it was diverted. So but you did get the creation of the Federal Reserve. And then we went into World War One. So let me let me kind of stop there and, and uh, you know, uh, call into question some of these issues. I, there's, to some extent, a little bit of a, a ping pong effect. There are times in the account and in the history where, and this is a gross simplification, you know, the states are at fault and the uh, malfeasance builds up because it's easy to venue shop or bribe somebody locally and get what you want. And uh, and then the federal government comes in or there's a central approach, whether it's the first bank, second bank or the central central reserve system or Salmon Chase and 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 uh, financing the uh, Civil War. Uh, and there the problems are frankly, not that dissimilar. They're just larger in scale where decisions made by the finance by the central banking authorities lead to distortions or outright corruption as well and uh, that that uh, are then taken advantage of at the at the local level and um, you know there's been more of a bias in the 19th century that the war was happening at the state level that's more in the bias in the 20th century in your account of uh, at the at the federal level but then and I'm jumping ahead a little bit but I just to establish the, the the problem in the 20th century when you have the the more on the federal side you have the state chartered savings and loans institutions where the problem gets severe at later in the 20th century we'll get to that or you know the lobbying during the financial crisis at the central level I, it's whack-a-mole my my question I guess as a reader is this is a, a mammoth case of whack-a-mole and it doesn't appear that either state regulation or federal regulation or the occasional Warren Buffett, J.P. Morgan stepping in or Robert Morris financing the revolution uh, is a particularly durable solution. It's not, but it, it is a game of walk-a-mole. And I don't know what the answer is, which is why I'm glad I'm a journalist and don't have to make opinion. But I will say this, that if I had to choose, I almost prefer the dual system just because one when one goes off the track, sometimes the other can come. That, that is dual right meaning there. a combination of state and federal uh, – uh, oversight of financial institutions. So one of the things that you that I s describe in the book, the way that the Federal Reserve, just to go back to the nineteen to the teens of the of the twentieth century, uh, when the Federal Reserve was created, it was a reflection again of that mistrust that Andrew Jackson had ha had instilled in the public or or reflected that was in the public's. Uh, uh, heart. He, the Federal Reserve, it, it does have a board in Washington, but it, the reason we have those Federal Reserve banks is a way to say, okay, there is a central bank now, we're going to have a national currency, enough of this, but we are going to, this is a nod to the states that we're going to have these, these reserve banks regionally that the states and the state banks, uh, as long as you're a member of the Fed, you can be a member of this and, and control it. So you control shares in it. It's not open. They're not publicly traded to the public. 
but it, this was a nod to saying we want to have this dual system of a federal but state and regional control over this entity that provides uh, the mechanism of being a lender of last resort in crises, that is the central bank. It, it influences interest rates. It influences credit. So you want to not just have that power parked in Washington. Well, well it, that's that that uh, kind of almost creative chaos that is uh, constant negotiation between state and federal is effectively what we've had for two centuries. And curiously, you know, not curiously, but some would say with great intention, the U.S. has has developed and emerged as a very vibrant society. And it makes one wonder whether the view that, well, in order to have this large complex organization, a country, uh, economy function, there's always going to be some slippage. There's always going to be some corruption. There's always going to be some graft. There's always going to be bad Democracy loans. Democracy is messy. Democracy is very messy. <laughs> Democracy is very messy. And the you know, part of that messiness is constantly trying to, you know, plug a leak here and then there's a leak elsewhere. Uh, and that each each effort at repair creates 5, 10, 15, 20 years later, almost its exact opposite problem of uh, because someone has then taken that rule and tried to figure a, uh, a workaround. Yes uh, and no. I, I, I know you were going to wait to get to what some of the ultimate, what I think some of the ultimate solutions are. And it, I think it does boil down pretty simply to some. But I do think that what you say is true, but I do think that uh, there are ways to fix that. And I think one of the, the reason the title of the book is Broken Bargain, and that broken bargain was forever, even before that we had deposit insurance uh, created after the crash of 1929, before we created deposit insurance in the 1930s, there was always an explicit bargain that in exchange for being incorporated, in exchange for having a banking charter, and by the way, the banks are called associations because um, some states said you couldn't um, have an incorporation without coming back to renew your um, uh, your license, your incorporation. You had to come back every few years, so they just changed the name to um, when the constitution of a of a state said you could not give limitless power to a corporation. They just said, okay, let's call them associations <laughs> and we'll give them limitless time. They can exist forever. But anyway, once you had that. Um, um, even before you had deposit insurance, when this idea of a government guarantee, a taxpayer guarantee became very explicit, and the bargain was you get the safety net in exchange for oversight, that bargain was really there from the beginning, maybe not as explicitly as it, it was during when, once we got deposit insurance, but that organized chaos uh, that, that it, it does cause some outsized problems and 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 um, things we don't makes things happen we don't want to have happen. I think there are ways to fix that, but the but we lose sight because of those problems. We say, see, when the government interferes, it screws everything up and unintended consequences. And as Alan Greenspan is famous for saying, we shouldn't have regulation just for regulation, which is such a ridiculous thing to say because I've never met anyone who said, hey, let's just have regulations to have regulations. Um, they're always supposed to have a point, and they typically do, and they're not always right, but they get some converted for political reasons, which we'll talk about later. But I just want to say that the broken bargain part of the title is, I hope I cement in people's minds in this book that from the beginning to have a corporation, particularly a bank as a corporation, is a privilege. It is a privilege, it's a designation bequeathed by the government on behalf of citizenry. And in exchange for that, the government has a right to come in and police and supervise and make sure that wrongdoing or activity that hurts the public is not going on. We've really lost sight of that. And the founding fathers really understood that. Now, Jefferson thought those problems were too... Um, it's so problematic that we don't shouldn't even try it. So no banking, no corporation, no federal corporations. Hamilton said, yes, there are problems. I agree with you, Mr. Jefferson. And he did. He just said, but but we need to figure out a way to overcome those problems by because we need it. We're a growing country. We're not just going to be agrarian. He foresaw the industrial, you know, he foresaw us as a different on a different economic track. So now you fast forward to the 1920s and you have the biggest economic dislocation 
up till then in the United States. And you have the crash of 1929. And the Fed, just, just parenthetically, didn't understand its job and it did everything wrong. It took money out of the system when it should have put money in. It, it left money in when it should have taken it out. And it didn't act as a lender of last resort during all the bank failures after 1929. So the Fed did everything wrong and, and really learned a lot. But, uh, but the bottom line is that prior to the 1920s. So we get we get the central we get our central bank but it didn't know what it was doing. We didn't have anything else. People take it for granted. Even people who claim they say oh I hate government regulation, let's get rid of it. In the 1920s there were there were no accounting standards, there were no disclosure standards, there was no record keeping, there was there weren't even a lot of anti-fraud provisions. Most securities laws, almost all security law was in state law. They're called blue sky laws. I finally figured out what that term meant when writing this book, there's state securities laws. And they existed because there was no federal, there were no federal rules. And so when you, when people invested during the 1920s, when the public really began for the first time in this, in, in our, in, in the country's history to really look like mo- it does now in terms of business, when people began to really become fascinated with the stock market, want to invest, think of investing they they were doing it blind you couldn't they couldn't try even try to be responsible because there were there was nothing they could read or find out because there were no rules there was there wasn't there were no accounting standards so we get to the 30s and we do put those rules in place and we do put in deposit insurance to stop the runs at banks but in exchange was this you know FDR was against <clears throat> deposit insurance he didn't want it hoover wanted it not FDR people get this wrong all the time FDR foresaw how deposit insurance could be misused, the moral hazard that it raised. And in fact, that's what happened in the thrift, uh, the SNL crisis, which you alluded to. But the bottom line is that this, this bargain was there and we keep forgetting it. And that is what I'm alluding to in the title is that we've got to figure out a way to get our regulators to do a better job so that in this chaos or this tension between state and federal, um, it, it's productive and works for society and not as a race to the bottom where people uh, you know are outdoing each other to try to give banks uh, whatever they want without without regard to whether it's good for society or not yeah I, I there's a phrase that you have about uh, you know profits are private but uh, losses are are socialized in the in the various bailouts Let, let's yeah, keep... my, my, my definition of moral hazard is uh, yeah. privatize the gain and socialize the risk. So the, the, the system that we currently have, and I think most readers get this, but it's worth reminding, the system we currently have was created as a result of the crash and the depression. The, the uh, SEC, uh, the Investor Act of 1940, the entire system was created in 1914, but the, uh, the framework is created as a result of the, um, um, of the crash. And it's, it's one in which the states have... Kind of ceded the power that they had in the in the, for some things of say uh, not SNLs but uh, which come into being to uh, and to focus on home uh, mortgage lending and are still state oriented until just a few decades ago. But that is the the central government, the federal government is becomes more predominant as a result of the crash and the regulatory impetus shifts from states to to Washington D.C. as a some, to some degree, but I just want to add one thing. Also, what shifts is public view of government prior to the tw- the crash. People may have looked to the government for help, but they didn't expect the government to come in and make them whole when they lost money when banks failed. People just did not expect it. It was after the crash and after the Depression in the 1930s that a fundamental worldview changed where people really, the, the public really began to look to the presidency and the Fed as the keepers of the economy and expected them to do their job, a job. A job, and that has been built in again. Social Security came emerged at that time, and it was never designed to be a, a, you know, a, a means by which an entire generation of people are supposed to uh, subsist entirely, but it's come to be assumed as a, that it's going to be a central kind of pillar of, of our society. Uh, and the same thing with with the federal regulation at this point, you are it, it came to being and then people are now are assuming and have over a course of uh, many decades come to assume that you know the federal government's strong and will will uh, do its best to to avoid uh, a repetition of the, of the the crisis. Unfortunately, 
you know, things happen. The economies change, uh, you know, uh, home ownership changes, World War II, the soldiers coming home, the prosperity after um, uh, and after World War II, uh, the financial services industry changes, technology changes. And we still have, and this seems, to, you know, it's kind of a theme of the book. There, it's still every 20, 30 years, there's a crisis, maybe not as dramatic as, as the, as the recession, uh, the depression, but, um, the, it is an ongoing exercise that doesn't appear to be ever to be completed. And then we've had really in the last 20 years, the SNL crisis was huge in 1990, 1991. And you spend a lot of time detailing exactly how that went wrong. And it's it a paved great the way, of, it paved the way for the current crisis. And the, the and the, crisis, not the current crisis. <laughs> and I, I kind of see it as part of the state versus federal government. But then the last 20 years, it's been almost nonstop from, uh, you know, the internet bubble wasn't so much a banking issue, but boy, the subprime lending and the great financial crisis absolutely was a banking issue. And, uh, you know, to this day, we are, you know, 10 years, we're still within the the uh, penumbra of the of the great financial crisis a full decade later, we're still dealing with the consequences of that. And so, you know, it it's, uh, I I was the book was gripping, uh, also depressing. I have to say, and and readers should know that. And I think it's a you know kind of open thing that the, these problems do seem substantially intractable. Not because the particular issue of uh, should uh, should uh, uh, futures or uh, derivatives be regulated over the counter or not, or some other thing should you know what is the degree of regulation for them. Uh, but and how transparent, because financial instruments evolve, financial conditions evolve. There's always something, as it were, that's coming up, um, and it, it it seems to be that through a combination of uh, individuals or technology or just economic development, that there's always another crisis kind of around the corner because the regulatory framework, you know, is look is fighting the generals are fighting the last war, not the the next one. So it it, it raises some some challenging issues. It does raise challenging issues, but I'm not so sure they're fighting the last war. I think what happens is people uh, pretend they're fighting the last war and say, and then, for example, just recently, I was on a panel at Brookings with the chief federal regulator and talking about all these proposals about bank regulation and saying the bank industry is doing so well now, so we're going to tamper with some of the things that were put in place after the mortgage meltdown. and. If you look at what he said, it can sound very reasonable. <clears throat> Excuse me. But then you look at his counterparts at all the other federal agencies, and we have so many, um, and I'm not sure that's a great idea. But on the other hand, I do think there's a, a kind of a unplanned checks and balances that happens. But so, for example, I just think the regulators in this administration are repeating the errors if they just looked at history. The head of the uh, controller, one of the, the chief bank regulator in the Department of Treasury, I won't bore readers with their official names, has been, he had, has referred to the banks he's supposed to be policing on our behalf, namely you and me as a taxpayer. And I think if we looked at this as a taxpayer issue, people of varying political ideologies could agree on a lot if we could just all agree we don't like to have our tax money spent for silly things. Um, he's called the banks he's supposed to be policing on our behalf, uh, particularly since deposit insurance is in place. He called them his customers. That's so wrongheaded on so many levels. And then over at the Consumer uh, uh, Protection Bureau, Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, which was created in the wake of the mortgage crisis, uh, in which those who oppose it cast it as a sort of nanny agency that's holding heads. Nonsense. Uh, let me just deal with what it does, what, what, um, one of the things that it's, it does for payday lending. It wanted to institute a simple, to me is finance 101, is that you can't give someone a loan without assessing their ability to repay it. Now, I'm sure to listeners that would sound like, well, of course you would do that. Well, you, of course you'd be in your self-interest to do that. And you would do that as a matter of course. And that's, of course, what Alan Greenspan assumed is that all these people on Wall Street would never make loans uh, if to people who couldn't afford to repay them. Well, it turns out that there's in this cockamamie world, 
of when things get revved up and there's no regulators who are doing their job, believe it or not, and if you're in finance, you know this, people do start lending money to people on terms they can't afford with the express purpose of making them refinance it over and over again to get fees. And so you have this crazy system where you burden the public with too much debt and then it all comes tumbling down. And we are fa- the seeds are, the, the situation right now is very ripe for the next crisis, but it won't be because of consumer debt. It will be because of corporate debt. But it's very similar um, what's happened in this 10 year, 10 years since the last crisis. But at any yeah, rate- we, we are, uh, I, I work on the, the corporate side and uh, it's certainly a, a topic of hot debate right now as to the level of corporate indebtedness uh, and the ability to service that debt. And what they're using the debt for. What, 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 it makes no sense to be so indebted to pay dividends. I mean, to, to have to pay dividends out of, to borrow money to pay dividends should be forbidden. And in early America, it was um, in some of the early incorporations. And to, 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 to use that, to go into debt, to buy back your stock, to make yourself look better, to get, it, there's just so many things wrong with that. And, but at the end of the day, if you lend too much money at some point, you may be making money on each loan, but then at some point you've 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 put the last straw on the camel's back, and you know then everything comes crashing down. And then who has to pick up the pieces? The taxpayer. Then you go back to the regulators and say, "Why aren't you doing your job?" So this is the uh, you know a theme of bailouts uh, from not so much in the 19th century because in the 19th century uh, it was just failures rather than bailouts, but in the in the 20th century starting from J.P. Morgan in 1907 and uh, continuing on, even though there were substantial failures uh, in both the, uh, the Great uh, Depression and in the SNL crisis, uh, it's really become a, a story of, of bailouts, which is, again, back to the point, private, you know, profit is privatized and, and losses are, are socialized. Uh, the moral hazard issue, which you take up in the book and is uh, an issue concerning regulation and bailouts also is one that I, seems to me largely intractable that uh, troubles me personally as both a citizen and someone in the financial services industry. Uh, and yet, you know, the argument that the regulators who, ex- you know, on on day zero saying, you know, no bailouts, because we don't, we don't do that. And on day one, they agree, well, we have to have a bailout is the argument that if they don't bail things out, the system will get uh, um, the problems will be more severe. You'll, you'll freeze up uh, an entire economy. And that's kind of uh, logical at the time, but uh, having the bailouts happen over and over again, uh, you know, really does raise just a basic human issue of moral hazard. And uh, I, I, I also, in this case, I, I, don't, I don't see um, an answer. I, I don't like the, I don't like the bailouts. I don't like the, uh, the, they're repugnant. They're horrible. Everyone had to hold their nose yeah, to do them. I, I don't know that they are ultimately, uh, you know, we ultimately worthwhile. I and mean, this becomes a political debate, but it, there are some historical and, and important issues about here. You know, limited liability corporations. Back to your initial coverage in the early chapters of your book about the significance of corporations and how people viewed corporations. Uh, there's a you know rich literature uh, on that to which you've contributed, but uh, you know limited liability corporations creates the mechanism for businesses to grow. It also creates uh, a mechanism for people to walk away from <laughs> bad situations. So yes, no, it does. There's no there's no question. Yeah, so there's absolutely no question. So the, you know. Move towards. So you have to ask yourself if you go if you think when were the two biggest bailouts in U.S. history, the thrift crisis of the '80s and the 2007 uh, crash, um, and it it was not just it, it began in 2007. Some people say 2008, but it really began in 2007. Um, it, it occurred those two bailouts. Isn't it curious that it occurred on the watch of the two most of Bush one and Bush two, of the two most avowedly um, anti-government, you know, get the government out of our our hair administrations. And the reason for that, and I think people in those administrations know it. There are many people in those administrations know because I learned these things from them, and that is 
that when you have, when you loosen up the rules, you need to have more policing. When, when after the, the 20s crash in the 1930s, we kind of carved up the industry. We had separation of investment and commercial banking, and we separated all these different kinds. of. Then we glued them all back together in the 80s for the complicated reasons I go through in the book. When you do that and say you all can be in each other's businesses again, you need more oversight. And that's what people forgot. So it's this question of how do you, um, I do think there are ways to keep people's eye on the ball. And I I, I don't want to get to the end discussion yet, but I think one of the key things that allows regulators to make silly comments like banks are my customers rather than <laughs> I'm in, the taxpayer is my customer and I'm supposed to be working on their behalf. <clears throat> I do think that campaign finance plays a very heavy role in allowing or in motivating Congress to put pressure on the regulators, including the SEC, uh, the CFTC, the bank, the bank regulators, it puts pressure on all of them to loosen up. No one likes to be hauled before Congress saying, what are you, you know, what are you doing? Especially regulators at the Securities and Exchange Commission, who unlike the bank regulators have to be funded, get their funding approved every year. And Wall Street has made sure that's the case because if Wall Street doesn't like something that the Securities and Exchange Commission is doing, they yank their chain. They yank the agency's chain by going to a member of Congress and saying, this agency is coming down hard on me. The congressman calls up the SEC, hauls them into Congress, and, and threatens to cut their budget. There's just all kinds of ways that if we, I think if we changed campaign finance, we would get elected officials to talk about issues rather than acting as uh, secret Santas for the lobbying industry, which is what they often do. I'm, I'm going to, uh, so let's, let's, let's get to that because uh, we are kind of running out of time. So the, the, the remaining historical part of the book to, before we get to kind of your conclusion, which you've just kind of outlined is the, in addition to the SNL crisis, the thrift crisis in the 80s and 90s, the great financial crisis, which you, you document, uh, you know, very clearly as to how that came about. And in light, in the context of the history of the 200 years of uh, financial history, it makes perfect sense that once again, kind of whack-a-mole balance between state and uh, local, uh, in this case, mostly at the federal level. Uh, the the issues, uh, personalities, the the lobbying, and it really all comes tumbling down. And it's a different type. Of, it wasn't real estate lending. It was, you know, uh, I'm sorry, it wasn't the uh, the SNL banks and the interest rate crunch in the 80s and early 90s. It was the the, uh, the subprime uh, mortgage and securitization. You, you provide a good history of how securitization comes about and makes, you know, contributes to these problems. And we have this great mess, the great financial crisis, which most of the readers will be familiar with. And we will, in the interest of time, say, you know, you've, you've clearly documented that. Now, you know, circa 2018, uh, you 19, are, 19. Uh, <laughs> circa, oh my gosh, circa 2019, <laughs> I think, yes. Circa 2019, 200 years of history, and we're having the same conversation that that uh, Hamilton and, and Jefferson were having. Yeah. And I, I suspect yeah. you're, you're, uh, you and I are probably on opposite sides of the table. Matter of fact, I can guarantee you that you and I are on, on the opposite side of the table. And, I bet you'd be surprised uh, I'm we'll very fiscally conservative. You'd be probably very surprised to find <laughs> out that I was a registered Republican for the last 30 years. I'm changing because I really hate both parties, but I'm like most Americans, I'm fiscally conservative and progressive socially, but I'm very fiscally conservative. And I never, I, one thing that I enjoyed as a reporter is only, only holding conservatives, purported free marketers up to their own standards because they're only free market until they can benefit. And the biggest budget deficits have occurred on the, on the dime of the Republicans. It's just a fact. Uh, so I will, we'll save that for the next book, but the, uh, you know, you, in, in the last chapter of your book, um, you, Start talking about proposed. I wouldn't call them solutions, and I don't think you want to suggest because it, it's too. There's no single solution, but as you pointed yeah, out, it's messy and it's ongoing. But but we need to have real debates. We need to have. There was a time. There was sort of a golden age in 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 Congress, and Jim Leach, who was a Republican from Iowa, chaired the House Banking Committee. And uh, um um oh, I can't believe I'm blanking on his name. Um. Um, Sarbanes, uh, Paul Sarbanes, chaired the Senate Banking Committee. He was a Democrat. Now maybe they bonded over the fact they both had gone to Princeton, but they but they were really 
really honorable politicians. They were as honest as the day is long. Uh, I guess they were, they had enough personal wealth or they were well healed enough that they didn't have to worry so much about losing their job. They did the right thing. They came at things from different ideological viewpoints. But I often say to people, once you get into finance, people from both Republican and Democrats, for example, I would say that the Treasury Secretary, the Undersecretary of Finance for Republicans and Democrats going back for the last 30 years, their politics are indistinguishable from each other. Once you, people on Wall Street, regardless of party, see things very often very similarly. So I I, I feel like they were, that was the last time people would have honest debates about who should own a bank. Are we better off with big banks that are sort of faceless, who treat people as numbers? and therefore without discriminating against them on color or, or background or gender? Or do we want the little hometown community bank that knows you and is going to help you and get help you get through rough times because they know you? Uh, or is that community bank going to be run by someone who's a jerk who's not going to give you a loan because you don't belong to the same country club? I mean, they had real debates uh, like this. And uh, I think you could have that again. But you, it's also true that when I covered the Senate banking committee for the post, you, you, you could tell like this senator represented the securities industry. This senator represented uh, insurers. This uh, senator represented, they, you, it was almost like they had little bubbles above their head, like in a Woody Allen movie saying which industry they were there uh, lobbying for or whose interests they were representing. So it, it, it just, we need, if we could get I don't know what the thing to do in campaign finance reform, because in some ways I hate the idea of having laws that tell people what they can do. But I certainly think that the Citizens United decision was completely wrong. Um, if you look at Hamilton's description of what... Let's let's provide a little bit of context. So again, just, just for the readers focused on the issue of the book itself immediately in the financial, who owns the banks and who should in charge of the banks, that in your, in you, you raise, and it's worth, you know, readers should go look at the final chapters where you raise these issues, you discuss a number of proposed partial solutions. There's no grand solution. A number of regulatory uh, tweaks that you think would make more sense rather than less sense. But as you've made clear in the interview, kind of the overarching concern for this 200-year problem is is campaign finance reform. If you had, to, if you had one shot at a fix yours would be, it would be campaign finance reform. Absolutely. For, for, so, and I think that this whole idea, again, going back to Hamilton, Hamilton's description to George Washington of what a corporation is, is as fresh today as it, it was it was then. He said it's a legal person. And that's true. But for then the courts to have said, okay, it's a legal person, that does not mean the same as a naturally born person. That to, to what Citizens United really did. Um, and you, you need to, for, I, I, I can't imagine there's anyone who doesn't know what Citizens United is who's listening here, but you may just want to remind people. Well, it's a it's a decision that says that 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 um, U.S. Supreme Court companies, U.S. Supreme Court. I hope I do this justice. Um, no pun intended. But the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that um, co- uh, corporations or and unions or large organizations can basically make political donations without limit as long as it's not to a specific. Um, um, uh, Per, campaign, uh, campaign uh, what, what's the word I want? Candidate. So issue so, oriented. Yeah, supposedly issue oriented, which is something you can stretch from here to the moon. A definition you can stretch. So it, it really unleashed a lot of money, and it, it, no one. I mean, ever, so many people know. It, it's just it, money. Money is is just so obviously something that can corrupt people, and so if you took it out of the equation, I think in a way that made sense you could have people have real discussions about what what regulations should we have in the wake of the mortgage meltdown? What uh, should we do? For example, I, I, this is just common sense. The credit rating agencies, it makes no sense at all that they were not liable for the the uh, opinions they rendered. Now, I go through the history of that in the book, and I won't go through it now, but it just- I, It's also I, worth pointing out that the uh, purchasers of their products are the companies themselves. Uh, are the companies. So they're rating, yeah, that's, they're that's, rating they're products of the people who pay them to rate the products. Yeah, so there's a near conflict of interest. They, but nonetheless, investors rely on those opinions. But then when things go wrong and it turns out they didn't even do their basic homework. Now, Dodd-Frank changed that. The, the law that was put in place in reaction does something. You, you tell me if you think this is common. 
common sense. What it says is, from now on, credit rating agencies have to actually stand behind their ratings. So that if if Kathleen Day invests in a company based on those ratings and the company tanks, she can sue you. And if it turns out that you didn't do any of the basic homework you were supposed to have done to have rendered an opinion, she might win her suit. Now, if if you've done everything you should have to try to render an opinion, to render an opinion, and it turns out you were just wrong, Kathleen Day can't win her, win her suit. So it's okay for someone to be honestly wrong. They were wrong, but in an honest way. But the credit rating agencies were, were basically ripping off the public, making opinions that were meaningless, and then using the defense that they had a First Amendment right of free speech. It was ridiculous. Okay, so let, let's kind of back That's up. Just and, one. And That's just one example. I, I, before we start a second book, so your, your, your next book is, uh, since it turns out that the, I'm putting words in your mouth, uh, but, but for rhetorical effect, that the 200 years of uh, both creative chaos and problems in the financial uh, sector, the banking sector in particular, is at least in its current variant significantly related to the inability to fix it related to uh, campaign finance, which is a, a, a political issue, which suggests that your next book needs to be <laughs> about uh, uh, directly about politics. So I just cleaned off my dining room table and my study of papers. I'm, I'm going to hold off. A little. But but it's very true. Look, politics. Americans have argued about these issues in a political way forever, and the most recent crisis brought us Donald Trump. It very much directly led to the pop, the sort of blind populism that that brought him, made his his message appealing to people. There's a famous CNN anchor who was uh, is given credit for creating the Tea Party movement when he ran around in the floor of the stock exchange with his microphone, uh, saying, "Who wants to bail out your your next door neighbor because they took out too big a mortgage?" So it's Rick Rick Santelli and it's CNBC. Yeah. Oh. Uh, yeah, I'm sorry. Did I say CNN? That's right. So let's before we go down that rabbit hole, we are at 50 minutes. Oh, it is so politics. I'm, I'm just saying I agree with you. I think that that money and pol and politics are also inextricably linked. I, I will just to frame it for the readers. You know, I, I uh, would, as a historian, also just a note that for all the troubles and particularly cyclicality in the the 19th century, uh, that the country did get built out and the uh, compared to other models, in some ways more centrally oriented, not necessarily wisely regulated, but centrally oriented business models uh, elsewhere in the world haven't haven't fared as well. And that, uh, you know, this is, uh, as in many endeavors in a complex society, there is an agency cost for any kind of complex activity that is, you know, unless you have your own capital to uh buy the farm or build the business, you're going to borrow money. And if you borrow money from somebody, there are always risks associated with that and agency costs. Agency costs defined as uh, people, intermediaries, regulations, which are all introduce uh, risks. Of or as I would say, you have to break eggs to make an omelet. Yes, there are costs to doing it, but there's bigger costs not to and do that it. And that cost was the big bail. I am tired of my wallet being assaulted because we have to, and I, I recognize we had to do the bailouts. I'm tired of it when it could have been prevented. It was so preventable if people had done their jobs. On that note, I think we will wrap it up. I, I hope, hope Can you're I say correct. One thing? Can I say just one, one more thing? And that is, I, I understand why this book might be dispiriting, is what the Kirkus reviewer said to many, but I don't mean it that way. I actually love finance. I mean, I have an MBA, I majored in finance. I love finance and I love Wall Street. And I do, um, I'm more Hamiltonian than Jeffersonian in thinking that we, understanding the absolute necessity of finance in in, in as the grease of the co to co of the cogs of our economy, I, but I also understand Jefferson's argument about the dangers. But I don't want people to be depressed by this book. I want them to come away having a better understanding, so that they can more uh, effectively engage in conversations as we go through. Because you know what, Trump's uh, lobbying voters informed voters. On that note, Kathleen Day, thank you so much for, for joining and providing, uh, whether it's Kirkus's uh, dispiriting or, or uh, I, I would just say, you know, a, a very dense and well-detailed uh, account, uh, historical account of a 
uh, fascinating part of the American story, but also a challenging one. Uh, the history of banks in this country and bank regulation. Uh, the book is Broken Bargain, Bankers, Bailouts, and the Struggle to Tame Wall Street, uh, just published by Yale University Press. Kathleen, thank you so much for, for taking the time and, and sharing your views. Thank you so much. And I'm, I really, I'm very, very flattered that you, that you liked it and that you, uh, I'm so pleased that you, you got from it what I hoped people would get from very it. Very good. And uh, hopefully others will as well. Thank you very much. 